Hi, I'm Krempinlak. And I'm Ayi Suwart. Welcome to Inquisity, a podcast about questions in architecture, city, and people. Welcome to the new episode of Inquisity, podcast about architecture, city, and people. Architects are often credited for the grand palaces, churches, skyscrapers, and monuments that adorn the cities. These grand designs are admired for their intricate details and ornaments through their advanced building and construction technologies. However, the genius of the architect is not exclusive to the wealthy and powerful. Architects are also capable to improve the quality of living of the poor and the marginalized members of the communities. Today, we will hear a different side of architecture that caters the informal settlers' families, or ISFs, and understand the encompassing scope of architectural research and design. Our guest for today is architect Natalie Audrey Santos, an architect, researcher, educator, and an aspiring urban planner. She is the managing partner for the startup firm Ibarra Architects. Audrey also volunteers as a researcher for the Tempe Link Build Inc. and Homeless, an NGO aimed at empowering the urban poor through people-driven housing design, research, and community organization. Welcome to the show, Audrey. Hello. Hi, Ai. Hi, Clem. So thank you for having me here. All right. So let's begin our episode. So one of your initial practices in architecture is from a high-end developer company that builds malls and condominiums. However, when you took your master's degree in USD, University of Santo Tomas, you decided to focus on informal settlers' family. What brought this shift and why did you decide to take on studying ISFs? Actually, way, way back in high school, I was more of this sort of student who would somehow always try to volunteer with urban poor. Actually, back then, I would try to write the action papers, try to get myself involved and always watch the news. But when I entered architecture, that somehow... As you've said a while ago, no, architecture is somehow more related into those who are part of the affluent of our society. So that somehow stopped a bit. But then it became sort of a routine after I've started working. I'd go to, I'd wake up early, commute, go to work in BGC or Makati, and then um, overtime and then go home. So it became sort of a routine and I sort of started to rethink the path that I'm taking. So I've decided na I'll try to interject something that's different. That's why I took up MS Architecture. Actually, at first, I was very hesitant to study again. Because honestly, I wasn't really part of that bright students that are very talented back in college. So taking up Masters of Architecture, major in urban design, it was sort of nerve-wracking that I just wanted to break that routine, but luckily I did. And after I've enrolled and I started attending classes, that's where I met people who are um, sort of became inspiration to me. And that made me want to look into going back to that sort of passion that I had back in high school. So actually number one that has influenced me and wanted made me want to go to study ISF is actually architect Ferrer. So 
so I would say um I would text him I'd also call him he's my idol because he's actually very active in terms of um ISF even has this book has a book about um informal settlers and I was actually very inspired by how he thinks and how he sees people and how he sees the city itself so after i was able to get my master's degree that's when i decided na i'll start pushing because um actually i took up masters almost five years i had to stay with developers because i needed the money to fund fund my master's degree to pay for the tuition fee, pay for the research that I need to do. And with that, after I graduated and finally got my master's degree, that's when I tried to look into what other things that I could do outside of being inside a inside the corporate world. So luckily, I actually just messaged Tampay and told them that I graduated recently and I wanted to help out if there's anything that I can be of help with. Then that's all where it started that I started volunteering for Tampay, Link Build, and now most recently with Homeless People Federation. So I'd say it's a combination of it's a passion for me. I've always heard, had this soft heart for for the poor people. Um, I'm not sure why, but I've always felt like I wanted to help out and try to do something that's um, within my capacity for those people that are in need. I'm actually not sure why, but I think that's one of the reasons why I was actually very attracted to listen to Sir Louis, to understand how he thinks and how he writes. So that's it. And honestly, the shift is actually not that hard. It wasn't that hard for me. Um, it felt like everything just fell into place after I've graduated from the master's degree um, and started to just message Tampay. After that, everything just went on. Like it was somehow a smooth transition. And I'm very grateful for that, actually, that it wasn't hard for me to just stop working for a corporate and then start working for and and for NGO and also trying out research and um, working in USD as well. I have a follow-up question. Mm -hmm. So could you give us an overview of what Tampay is? What is um what do they do? What are the initiatives? What are maybe one to two initiatives that you're currently working on? So Tampay is actually a part of a a big group of NGO, and that's the Homeless People's Federations, Inc. Our Tampay is sort of the technical arm. So Tampay is mostly composed of architects and engineers. Some are volunteers, but very few are actually um, employed by Tampay because it's a small non-government organization. So, so what we do is that we try to help out those communities that are part of Homeless People's Federation. In terms of what the focus is, it's mostly trying to build houses that are people-driven, that are people-oriented, and that we try to make sure that all the houses and communities that are designed for this uh, informal settlers are focused on them and not just by for example we have laws governing um, what's the size or what's the what's the minimum size and maximum size for this and that number of families but in Tampay we try to make sure that we communicate with people so even if you're an architect you get to talk with people and get to be part of somehow community building and looking into 
how you can translate their visions and their dreams into something that's concrete and of course something that they could afford so that's where tampi comes in and basically what the group of non-government organizations that is that tampi is part of what we're advocating is all about community building and people-driven design and people-driven decision making um, we try to educate them in tampe there are also initiatives that would of course not now during the covid times but back then tampe has mapping activities um, wherein members of the community are community leaders and their other members are taught how to measure their lots or how to measure where whatever that area is that their current house is standing and what's the importance of having roads and of course doing our best not to like push them that this is this and that is what you should do but we try to make it of sort of an educational process so that they could decide for themselves as well i have a question if i would want to volunteer for similar ngos like tampe mm-hmm. what kind of skills or knowledge do i need to have in order to volunteer or research for this NGO? Actually, there are no limits as to what what your profession or what your expertise is. Um, all you have to do is actually just um, inquire with them and message them. Um, and they would be interviewing you, of course, of why you want to volunteer and what's your motivation of volunteering and why would you... Um, they just want to make sure that your heart is sort of in the right place, that you do not, you, you're not just volunteering just because you want to be, you want to research or you want to be, um, they would ask you, ask you ask questions as deep as what's your motivation and why are you suddenly volunteering? So I got asked the same questions and um, I think, I, I guess that's the only, um, that's the only sort of big requirement is that, you're leaning towards or you believe in the in their vision of people-driven development and people-driven people-driven um, decision making so is this ngo crowdfunded or are there private actors or stakeholders there are private mostly private entities that would donate so for example, right now I'm working on sort of documenting COVID response of these communities. This is actually funded by Asian Coalition for Housing Rights. So this are um, group of architects as well, actually, and um, other stakeholders in different countries, mostly, I'm uh, sorry, in Asian countries, looking into or has this sort of vision that everyone has a right for good and livable housing so it's mostly on that network and of course even if tampe is an ngo um, we also would like to work with government agencies the main goal of homeless people federation is to empower people because there are many um, funding agencies involved in housing rights Um, aside from nha um, we also have in the Philippines community lending 
um, the government would lend them certain amount of money so long as they're organized and they would actually have the liberty to hire their own architects to design the community as they would want so long as they would pay um, a certain amount equivalent to their loan for a certain number of years and they would pay it as a community not as individuals okay that, that that's very interesting actually so so other than studying urban design and taking on isfs for your thesis paper and of course you were clearly involved with ngos who volunteer for these families You've conducted further research about this topic. I guess, what do you think is the most remarkable idea um, you've discovered about this particular topic that you're partaking? I think the biggest thing that I've realized while I was doing research and while I was working with these people is that normally people, even in the middle class, and of course in those that are part of the affluent part of our society, they would look down on these people and like um, they were not able to finish schooling. Um, they have limited knowledge or limited education in terms of this and that and factors, any factors. But what we don't realize is that when these people, they organize and they have one goal, they're capable of reaching that goal. So I've researched about what these organizations are capable of. These organizations are capable of um, building their own homes and paying for them, not for free. So they just need a bit of assistance in terms of being given that opportunity to be lent money, to have a small plot of land for their family. And just basically, I think what they lack is just the opportunity but given the opportunity they would be able to pay off their debts so as studies would show communities that are not just given a certain plot of land or for example in, in nha they would like um build this huge buildings and then um condominiums per se for the poor and they would get them from different portions of this unit is for you, this unit is for this family. But these families, they, they don't know each other. And they end up selling the property and not being able to pay for it. But if they're involved in the design process and all the decision-making, they give more value to these properties and they make sure that they pay off their debt. So studies show that people that are involved in or they were able to build up their homes through community organization versus people who are just relocated there, they are more likely to stay and they are more likely to pay off their debts and complete their debts with the government. So I think that's one of the things that um, we should learn from them is that they just lacked the opportunity. But given the opportunity, they would be able to achieve so many things. And it might be hard for them, but they would they would make way just to achieve that goal because I think not. it's not just them. No. Even those that are in the middle class, it's one of our goals to have our own house, to have a roof above our heads and to make sure that our families are safe. They actually just want the same thing. And I think it, they should be given that opportunity. I think in terms of architecture, it's that we should learn that we should treat them as our clients 
um, for example, we have our own clients. We don't just show them this is what's good and this is what's nice because that's your own personal style. So you should, we should treat the ISF the same and give them the same opportunity to hear them out, to understand their needs. Um, I think they're no different from the clients that we encounter in our daily lives as architects and that um, they're capable of making their own decisions and capable of having their own preferences. And that should be something that we should learn from. Somehow, um, as I would notice or meet other architects in the field, architects, we have this certain godlike feel that when I design this, it's good because I'm an architect and this is what you need. But in reality, even our clients that are part of the affluent society, it's not like that. So I think that's one of the very striking things that I've learned. We should not look ourselves as architects that we're sort of gods, that this is what I designed and this is what's in the code and this is what's right. It's, it's not always like that. We should always keep our minds open and keep our ears open and our eyes open as to what our clients need. And in this case, they're ISF. We should always try to be understanding and open-minded, I guess, of what others need and not just what we want as architects. That is very inspiring, you know, Audrey, that understanding about the ISFs who are lacking of opportunities. But in the end, these are, in a very generic way, these are the clients who need to be understood, who need to be catered, who need to be provided with a better quality of living, better built environment. And understanding them would give us a deeper skill of learning and studying and researching about the clients. And I think such kind of activity would make architects become better architects, I feel. I agree, I agree. And I think that at the same time, we would also reflect that they are they are significant members of the community who who should be provided with better housing with because they are contributors as well to the community they are the tricycle drivers they are the ones manning the sari sari store or the magtataho or or those who sell balot on the streets and i think these are the members of the community who should be recognized and in the end still be given an opportunity to have a better quality of living, a quality of housing, and and to an extent a better future for the, their next generation. If we cater for these kinds of families, we are not just catering for, for them, but we are also catering for the future as a whole as a community, as a city. As architects, we are also responsible for their built environment, mm -hmm. for their cities, for their housing. And that is something that we need to be sensitive of also. Back when I was doing my thesis study, my master's thesis is actually about city or the general livability in the city. And that's where I first encountered um, interviewing people who live under the bridge but they're generally happy and they're generally satisfied with their lives and with their living conditions. I remember going 
on an interview one time and they live under the bridge and i remember coming out of that with sort of skin rashes all over my back and my legs but then when i looked back or when i was studying back the interview that we had i realized that they are happy not because of their of course the physical environment but they're happy because of factors such as for example um paycheck is very low or at a certain point they could just actually just ask their neighbor um Mare, or they call them Mare and Pare, their neighbors. And they would say that, can you lend me a canned good for today and I'll pay you when the money comes. And they're able to survive as a community depending on their neighbors and, of course, making sure that when their neighbors need help, they can depend on them as well. And that's when I realized that livability that we paint, there are many livability studies um, all over the world or they're recognized, but they're mostly are about um, physical environment or the physical state. But it's not actually just that. I mean, it is an influence, but we should not or never forget about the community itself and the deeper meanings of these physical aspects of the society. For example, the family that I interviewed, they're living under this, under the bridge, but um, their children have already graduated college. They were able to send their children to college. And it's important for them to stay within that area because, um, number one, they're already very experienced or that's where they're comfortable, comfortable with already. And aspects such as they're near the school, um, a very good public school, and they're near the church. So it's not just the church itself or it's not just the school itself. It's what they symbolize and it's what they're able to give. For example, um, we Filipinos are very influenced by our religion. So that's one factor that they're happy in that area because a church is nearby. Whenever they're feeling low, they would just go there and um, pray and they would be able to get by. And another factor is that they're near the school, a very good school. and that's very important for them so that they would be able to send their children to school. So this physical aspects has this corresponding meaning or corresponding important aspect for them in their lives. That's actually very remarkable, Audrey, when you mentioned that the quality of living of people is dependent on the community. Because I remember there are a lot of literature in urban planning and neighborhood design that discuss about the physical built environment the required physical built environment for a good neighborhood these are like parks these are like sidewalks or infrastructure etc etc but not a lot of literature discuss about the kind of happiness or kind of community the neighborhood is providing for the people and i think there should be a sensitivity on this kind of aspect of a neighborhood of the urban environment because we are not just designing you know cities we are not just designing buildings and streets and parks and open spaces but we are designing community and people will be living in these communities mm-hmm. and if we reflect that the core of these communities are the people 
then maybe we'll be building them differently rather than just you know creating a cookie cutter project mm. and then fit these people inside these mm. projects and expect them to have a good quality of life because you provided mm. this kind of technical information etc etc but in reality they are far away from their friends or their compares or comares mm. and that these are the challenges that we tend to forego on our designs and our on the neighborhood that we are designing and i think that is something that we need to reflect on also especially the local contextualized filipino kind of neighborhood that we want to build on just to follow up on that i remember architect ferrer he mentioned something about when you land the hit the poor people in the Visayas, they were actually rooted out from their original community. And then the result was that people were very unhappy and people had this sort of rage towards the government that they were displaced, etc., etc., because they were not able to thrive in their relocation site, whether it was a nipahat or whether it was a concreted house. They were still unhappy. It's because that's not what they're comfortable at and somehow their existing communities were broken and they were relocated in different places and they were no longer happy and comfortable with what they have. So as important as the physical aspect is, it is also important that we should learn to understand and learn to recognize what these physical aspects symbolize to these people. So a house is not just a house or a school is not just a school for them. And I think it goes not just for informal settlers, but for everyone in the society, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. So it it goes for everyone. All right, let's talk about dreams, Audrey. What is your dream for the ISF or the informal settlers' families? I I just hope that all these things that we're doing right now would be somehow a result of a better Philippine environment and better opportunities for all and equity for all. I'm not saying that everyone should be equal, but equity and be equal be given what are their basic needs and for them to be able to live not really an affluent life, but a simple, modest life that they're able or they're provided with good sanitation, with water, with enough food in their tables, a roof above their head. And that's actually just what they're asking for. And um, somehow I wish that somehow our society, our government would be able to prioritize them and just for them to have enough to live comfortably. They're not asking for too much or not asking for affluence. Just They're just asking for what they need and what's rightfully theirs. Okay, so which leads us to the people who envisage themselves to, the, I guess, design or create spaces for ISF. So if young architects or architecture students take interest on studying such a topic, how do you think are they supposed to, I guess, start? How do they open their horizons? What motivation should they have? What qualities should they have to take on this topic? 
I think first and foremost, they should be open-minded because when you meet these people, some would have no water source, some would have no paved walkways, they'd have to work on dirt, walk on dirt and be mindful of what they say. We have this tendency that as architects, we're sort of in this box, that this is what's good and this is what's nice and this is what's beautiful but it's not always like that no? so actually um i remember talking to architect ferrer and we were discussing his book he said there that there are many things that we ought to learn from the informal settlers and if you would notice their architecture they're not on the standard size like for example their stairs are not standardized to the minimum and maximum that we have and their hallways are not up to the standards of what we would want as architects, but they're able to live. So I remember thinking back then that maybe our ergonomics per se are somehow just gotten or somehow we copied it from the Western world. And we would notice that those that are in the Western world, they're somehow more um, higher in built or bigger in built. and so how come we put our standards into that and even other countries for example in japan they have their own ergonomics maybe we could look into doing something similar and try to benefit from that for example um we'd be able to show in our studies that somehow a a smaller hallway would be acceptable for these families then we could work out some innovative architecture that would cater for these people because, of course, the bigger the construction is, then the bigger the cost of construction. So it would be beneficial for the ISF and, of course, for us as architects that when we'd be able to define something that's our own. So that's actually one thing that I wanted to study back then, but I haven't really gotten the chance to and haven't really written the methodology to do so. But I hope soon when I somehow have the time to work on something similar, then I would try to, I've been wanting to look into, for example, documenting in informal setter families, what's the size of um, what's the size of their stairs, what's the size of their hallways, and try to look for a common ground on what they have and what's on our standards. And then maybe we could develop something that's more suitable, not just for the ISF, but also even for other um, sectors of the society so that we could be able to create something that's more innovative in a sense. For example, newly graduate students, they would want to venture into this sort of studies. They could actually also apply for internship in um, non-government organizations. Actually, Tampe accepts interns and there are other non-government organizations. The cliche is that it's not, it won't pay you well or bring food to your family or something. But in reality, it's the same as a normal job that a normal office firm or normal architectural firm, then you could learn a thing or two about organization and, of course, architecture as well. So I think it's something that they could look into. All right. Thank you very much, Audrey, for that sharing. I think this is a very insightful and inspiring episode for us and that we would want to learn more about the ISFs and their environment. 
it's quite interesting that this episode started with the intention to understand the ISFs, but the topic branched out to different concerns of architecture. Early on, we talked about neighborhood and community and township, and then eventually we jumped to ergonomics and the question about what is the Filipino ergonomics and are we doing or are we using the standard that is meant for us Filipino or should we innovate for ourselves? And that is something that is quite interesting because we realize that studying about ISFs would actually help us realize a lot of things that are significant to architecture and the urban environment. Maybe because the problem of the ISFs or the informal settlers family also resonates to other kinds of concerns in the city, mm-hmm. in our communities, in our rooms, in our houses that we do not recognize. It's just that it's magnified on the ISFs. But in reality, we are all sharing the same problem and that we could all contribute on improving that kind of problem that everybody could benefit from, not just ISFs. And I think also, just to mention that architects should not be exclusive to the rich and the Mm -hmm. affluent that we mentioned earlier, because we could create innovative and inspiring architecture, such as that of the Pressure Prize awardee, Alejandro Aravena, who is known for developing you know, socialized housing communities and that we could take inspiration from. And that is something that we could also aspire to become. All right. Thank you very much, Audrey, for this episode. This is very insightful. This is very inspiring also. But before we let you go, we will let you ask a question, something that we always ask from all guests that we had here in the show. What is your question about architecture city and our people i think the most basic question is that how can we as architects be able to make our built environment more inclusive i think this is the trend of inclusivity it's more of a for the pwd for those who are um, without sight or without hearing but the question is that how can we make it more inclusive for different sectors of the society, not just where we're comfortable with, which is those that are part of the affluent in our society. It's a very interesting question. And um, of course, this question could be answered, I guess, by multiple actors or multiple um, stakeholders who are involved in like um, economic, uh, social, um, government, or um, I guess uh, private, public entities. So a lot of entities will be involved in answering this question. Mm-hmm. So Audrey, um, we'd like to give you this opportunity, of course, to promote um, your projects and of course the NGO that you've been working with. So as I've mentioned earlier, um, I hope that more architecture graduates would look into branching out their field or their expertise or interest in terms of designing not just for the rich but for everyone and i hope that 
they do not necessarily need to work for ISF. For example, um, I have other jobs as well. And I do volunteer work for NGOs, but I also have my own projects, private projects, where I think I can earn from. And I also teach in USC, and that's something that um, would also help you earn. And it doesn't need to be black and white that if I want to work for ISF, that's the only job that I would need. But there are many, many other work that you could involve yourself in. And I think... The good thing about having multiple interests and multiple work is that, of course, you'd be able to, of course, earn more and you'd be able to widen your horizon. You would just realize one day that you've been doing different sort of work and that you've learned at least a thing from each of these and that would advance your career more. I hope they consider working for or trying to get involved in non-government organizations such as Tampay, LinkBuild, and ACHR, and homeless people, and just to encourage them. When you learn or when you meet people from different parts of the society, different income brackets, then you'd be able to look at the city that you want to design in a deeper way and that you'd be able to understand not just one aspect but to understand the city as a whole, it's because, as you've mentioned earlier, I is that we're just part, as architects, we're just part of this big group of different professionals and different stakeholders in designing our cities and in generally making our cities more livable and making our cities more inclusive. And when you're part of that, if you, you have this wide horizon of the city itself, then you'd be able to become a more effective part of that team and generally or hopefully a better Philippine environment, not just for the ISF, but for us, for everyone in the Philippines. All right. Thank you very much, Audrey. And thank you. We hope to see you again next time. Thank you very much, Audrey, for joining us. Thank you.